0: It's uh, just a great pleasure to be with you today. Um, you know, I've heard so much about your congregation over the years, and uh, it's a special pleasure for me to be here with uh, uh, my beloved friend, Aubrey, and his family, Nishika and the children. Of course, I, I had Aubrey as a student. You, uh, we, we were so thrilled when Aubrey be, uh, became the preaching pastor here you know, at Southern Seminary, you know this. God has gifted and anointed Aubrey in a very special way. He, he won our preaching award. You're not surprised to hear that uh, at, at the seminary when he was there. And, uh, but most of all, just what a beloved friend uh, he has been and, and what I've learned from him over the years. But what, what a joy to see uh, this church thriving and growing in the Lord and growing in his word. It's uh, such a delight for me to be with you today. Well, our text today is Revelation chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 9 to the end of the chapter, Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9, and you could uh, turn to there. We will read that uh, momentarily. But let's pray again first. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as we come to your Word, as we just sang, that you would uh, speak to us Help us to observe it, uh, understand it, meditate upon it, and apply Your Word to our lives. May Your Spirit come now and teach us in a special way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in chapter 1 of uh, Revelation, our passage today, Jesus, as the Son of Man declares, don't be afraid. Uh, fear is a common temptation for all of us. I read some years ago that people fear more than anything else in the world giving a speech in front of people well i don 't know if that 's true i don 't uh, who who takes these surveys and uh, is that really the thing people fear most but clearly it is something many people fear there's there 's fear of heights fear Fear of swimming in deep waters. There's there's fear of crowds. There's uh, fear of enclosed spaces. There's uh, there's fear of loneliness. We we may fear losing our health, or or fear uh, what other people think about us. Uh, that that's a very common fear, isn't it? Uh, Some of you have surely read C.S. Lewis's book uh, in his famous trilogy, the last book, That Hideous Strength, and he talks about Mark Studdock in that book, and Mark Studdock falls prey to the fear of being excluded, what, what Lewis calls the inner ring, you know, the, the, the ring that can, c- controls what's happening in a, in a group or a society. And that fear of being on the outside. And, and because of that, Mark Stoddick compromises to be part of uh, the inner ring. But read the rest of the story to find out what happens if you haven't. One of the strongest fears is the fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2 says that those who fear dr- death are, are enslaved all their lives. If, if you're if you're not a Christian today, you know you're you're going to die. What will happen after you, you die? Well, keep listening. We have good news for you today. You know, as Christians, we may fear, even from the, what the prayer today that Cass prayed, we may fear that the world is turning against us, that that evil is finally triumphing in society. We see this in our culture. We see it in the U.S., but we really see it around the world, don't we? We see this in the realm of sexual morality as the LGBTQ plus movement that becomes more and more uh, influential. Uh, We see this more and more with the acceptance of uh, the transgender movement. But we need to remember, true Christians, we've always been in the minority. I, I think that's true. Always, we've always been in the minority. That was true in John's day, it's true in our day as well. We are, not, we are not faced with anything new, but the temptation, when you recognize you're a minority, the temptation is to be afraid. Christians were outside the mainstream in the Greco-Roman world, and we're outside the mainstream today. When John wrote, believers were were sidelined, they were discriminated against, they were persecuted, and they were even being put to death. I mean, I don't know what's happening here in particular, but I don't think that last thing is happening, right? You're not being put to death yet. But surely there are Christians around the world that are being put to death, right? Some are giving their lives for Jesus. Even today, don't forget to pray for them. There are our brothers and sisters. You've never seen them, but we can, we can pray for them. Well, for our text today, I think we can summarize what we find in these verses with the words of Jesus in John 16. In the world, you will have suffering, but take courage because I have overcome the world. Well, let's look at our text today in Revelation chapter 1. Starting in verse 9, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. "'I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus.' and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, what a fascinating passage. I, I see three different kind of segments in this passage. Uh, first, verses 9 through 12, our are, are function as the background, sort of, sort of background notes, important background notes. Then, ver, then verses 13 through 16 are sort of the center of our passage, and there we have the vision the vision of Jesus as the Son of Man, and then verses 17 through 20, we have the response to the vision. That response is both John's response and, and Jesus as the Son of Man's response. So let's, let's begin with the background. What, what is the background? Well, the, the writer the writer identifies himself. He identifies himself as John. Which John is this? I believe with most of the church throughout history, this John is John the Apostle. John was probably, when he wrote this, an old man in his 80s. The majority view is that Revelation was written in the 80s or 90s when Domitian was the Roman emperor. Domitian was the Roman emperor from 81 to 96 AD, so I think Revelation was probably written in that time. We see that by the way, we see that in an early church writer named Irenaeus. He uh, he says that John wrote during this time, and I think that is correct. So John is older. John's an experienced Christian, isn't he? He's been a believer for a long time, and John John was in exile uh, for preaching the gospel. He was confined to an island called Patmos. That's a that's a small island in the, the Aegean Sea. We're, we're told, right? He's He's confined because of the Word of God, which is the gospel, right, and the testimony about Jesus. So he was preaching God's Word, and God's Word focuses on on who Jesus is. John was preaching that, and so he was confined there. You know, we don't know exactly what that meant for John. Uh, We don't have many other details, but we know he was being persecuted for the faith. Then notice that John... John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day was almost certainly Sunday. You know, we we have hints scattered throughout the New Testament. I know that's rather new here, but we, we have hints scattered throughout the New Testament that believers gathered to worship on Sunday. Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday, right? And then we have some hints in 1 Corinthians 16, Acts 20, Uh, that, That the early church gathered. That's the tradition of the church that the church gathered to speak. So it seems significant that he received this vision on the day believers gathered together. You're gathered here. That's one of the responsibilities as believers, isn't it? To regularly gather together as believers. Well, you're all obeying that today. You're here, right? To regularly gather as Christians. Whether we feel like it or not when we get up in the morning, right? We gather together to uh, hear God's Word and worship together. John says he was in the Spirit. That doesn't mean that on Saturday, John was in the flesh, but praise God Sunday, uh, he's in the Spirit. The, The point is that by the Spirit, he was receiving as an apostle and a prophet prophetic revelations. He was receiving visions. Uh, consider these verses revelation chapter 4 verse 1 after this i looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which i had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and i will show you i will show you what must take place after this at once i was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. And, and, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Revelation chapter 21, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit, to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. So do you see that link? Notice that link between being in the Spirit and seeing visions and revelation of God. So, So John's receiving a prophecy, and that's what this whole book is, isn't it? John's receiving visions and revelation from God couple other background notes before we get to the vision. We see in verses 11 and 12 that Revelation was not first written to us. Of course it is for us, isn't it? It's God's Word. God's Word speaks throughout history. But first it was written to the seven churches that are in modern-day Turkey. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sard- Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea they understood this book. They understood this book. They were helped by this book. They preserved this book. Why is that important? Because there are people out there that say Revelation should be interpreted primarily from current events. There are people out there today who interpret Revelation fundamentally from the headlines that we read in the news. But that's backwards, isn't it? That's off the rails from the beginning. So that can be a test for you. If, if that's what they're doing, that's, that's a mistake. No, I'm not saying they understood every detail of Revelation. We don't either, right? That's not new. But they understood substantially what this book is about, and so can we, and so can we, just as they did. But remember, it was written to them first, and then we understand it and apply it to our own lives. The Holy Spirit helps us as he's helped the church throughout history understand the Scriptures. The apostle John turns to see the voice and he sees seven golden lampstands. That number seven is often symbolic in Revelation. Of course, there are seven churches, but it's also symbolic of all the churches, isn't it? And we learn that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches and the churches are what? They're to be a light to the world, the, we we are to do good works, right, and let our light shine so that people see see the glory of Christ and people see the glory of Christ as you live, as you live uh, godly lives, as you proclaim the good news about Jesus. You 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 are the church of Jesus Christ. What what a glorious task you have, right? How beautiful it is to live lives that bring glory to God, and to tell others the good news about Jesus. Then then I just want you to notice John identifies. John identifies with its readers. He He is their brother and their partner in affliction, in suffering. God's Word doesn't come from a man just living in comfort, right? John's not just living in, in, a, in a really wonderful place. He's not on vacation somewhere just writing and saying, I, I, I hear things are really hard for you. John is suffering too. He knows what they're going through, the, their sorrows, their strife, and their suffering. John can identify with that. He knows, he knows their life isn't easy. And that's true as our lives as Christians, isn't it? It's not not easy. We often go through difficult times. But that's not all he says. I don't want to minimize the suffering for a moment, but he also says he's a participant with them in the kingdom. Jesus reigns now. He's at the right hand of God. He's ascended. What is Jesus doing right now? He's sitting on David's throne. He's reigning, and he's ruling. So, there's a not yet. We await for the second coming, but Jesus rules and reigns now. So even now, there's, there's joy, isn't there? There's triumph. There's blessing. Uh, even while John was in Patmos, he was triumphing by God's grace. And isn't that true? You know, if you're a Christian, even when you're suffering, God gives strength, doesn't He? God gives joy in the midst of difficult times. Even when it looks like we're losing, does it look like John's losing? We're winning. Even when we're suffering, finally we're triumphing. God's kingdom has come. Therefore, brothers and sisters, there's no reason to fear. We have no reason to fear. We serve a triumphant God. Well, that brings us to the vision of Christ in verses 13 through 16. We see, we see in this vision that Jesus is is the Son of Man. That's the, we read that passage earlier, right? The passage about the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. I just want to remind you of that. You could flip over there quickly if you are flexible with your fingers, you know, or your iPads, whatever you have, or phones. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, I, I looked, verse 9, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, that's God, right? took his seat. So, God, God rules, right? His clothing was as white as snow, signifying his purity, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Note that. We'll come back to it. The hair of the ancient of days, God's head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Entering God's presence is an awesome thing, isn't it? We see that there. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand and stood before him. Then then I skip to verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Well, this vision in Revelation, is of this Son of Man. And, and John is telling us the Son of Man is Jesus Christ. He fulfills this uh, prophecy we find in the Old Testament. Of course, we read about that often in the Gospels, don't we? Again and again in all four Gospels, we're told Jesus is the Son of Man. And now we see it again here in the book of Revelation. Jesus is also called the Son of Man in Acts chapter 7, verse 56. Stephen uh, acknowledges Him as the Son of Man as He's uh, dying. And and perhaps we have a a reference to this passage as well in Hebrews chapter 2. But we see it here in Revelation chapter 1. And what do we see about the Son of Man? He's he's in the middle of the lampstands. Now remember, the lampstands stand for the churches, so that means he's in the midst of the churches. You know, another thing to notice here in this passage, we have to be good Bible readers, often John takes what he describes in this vision of the Son of Man, and he applies it to the letters to the seven churches. So, you know, when you read those letters to the seven churches, He often takes from part of this vision and applies it to the churches, and we also find it in other places in the book of Revelation, as we shall see, and we see it in this case, Jesus as the Son of Man is in the midst of the churches, and then we read in the first letter, the letter to the church of Ephesus, in chapter 2, verse 1, that Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands. What does that mean? Jesus has fellowship with the churches, right? He's walking in the midst of the churches. Jesus has fellowship with this church. He's walking in the midst of your church. He knows He knows what's happening in this church. He knows you. He knows uh, what you're like. He, 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 he knows... That the church of Ephesus is doctrinally orthodox. Praise God, that's really important, and that's, I know that's emphasized in this church because I know Aubrey and some of your other pastors, and that is so vital to be doctrinally orthodox. He knows this church is doctrinally orthodox, that is the church of Ephesus, but that it's loveless without love. And we can also say uh, he walks with the churches. He's our good shepherd. He doesn't abandon the churches. He enjoys, he enjoys fellowship with us. He abides with us. He pours out His love upon us as the glorious uh, Son of Man. Secondly, we see as the, as the Son of Man, He's clothed with a long robe, and He has a golden sash around his chest. So, so what does that long robe and that sash represent? You know, this is not a literal picture. Have you ever seen, I've seen people try to draw pictures of this passage. Have Have you ever seen this? This is not a literal picture, though, of what Jesus looks like. This is apocalyptic literature which is full of symbolism. That doesn't mean it isn't real, but it means we must interpret the symbolism well. Well, we look back, we look back in the Scriptures, we look back to Exodus chapter 28, and there we see that the priests have this long robe and this golden sash. So John is telling us that Jesus, as the Son of Man, is our high priest. He's a a priestly Son of Man. He's a priestly... Messiah, uh, Revelation chapter one verse five says that Jesus loves us and has set us free by His blood. Now these are words coming out of my mouth, but they're so true, aren't they? He, if you're a Christian, He loves you. John Owen says, "I think I think this is right. Every sin we commit." is because we don't recognize how much God loves us. He loves us. He loves you. Present tense. I think the present tense is important there. He loves us. He loves you. He loves you. How do you know? He set you free. He redeemed you. He liberated you by his blood. He gave his his life for you. That's That's the evidence of his love. And if you're not a Christian today you're not a believer, if you're not trusting in Jesus, you need this message. You need to be set free because you're not good enough to enter God's presence on your own. you, You are a sinner. You have fallen short from what God requires. You need to repent of your sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin so you can experience his great love, and uh, I know if you came with friends, they'd love to talk to you about this. Pastor Aubrey, the other pastors, would love to talk to you about that after the service. Don't be shy. We all know in this room, we all know that we're deeply flawed in and of ourselves, and we all know that we need a Savior to deliver us, and there's nothing we delight in more than telling others about the Savior. Well, next, we see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, that the hair of the Son of Man's head was white, like white wool, like snow. Did you notice something strange in comparing Daniel 7 and Revelation 1? According to Daniel 7, which we just read, the Lord, Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, has the white hair, not the Son of Man. Has John remembered the passage incorrectly? Has he mixed it up? Oh, wait a minute. He read that passage. Who has the white hair? He got confused. He didn't get it right. No, no. no. Absolutely not. First of all, he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. No, no, John, John doesn't make a mistake. He alters the words of the Old Testament. He tweaks the Old Testament, intentionally. He's telling us, readers, the Son of Man has white hair just like the Ancient of Days. What what is he telling us when when he's saying this? He is saying the Son of Man is fully God. He's fully divine. The Ancient of Days is fully divine. So is the Son of Man. What does the white hair represent? Eternity. Eternity. God doesn't literally have white hair, right? Nor does Jesus. But it symbolizes His eternity. The Son of Man has always existed as the Son of God, right? And will always exist. He's eternal. And He's wise. Probably the white hair also symbolizes wisdom, right? He is wise. And He's infinitely wise. His God is infinitely wise. He's fully divine. He's fully God. So this is no mistake The Son of Man shares in the very identity and nature of God Himself, so we worship Him. Behold our God, seated on the throne. That's the Father, but also the Son, and we can say the Holy Spirit as well. Notice also that the Son of Man's eyes are like a flame of fire in verse 14. What does that mean? I'm beating a dead horse, but that's not literal language, right? As the Son of Man, Jesus doesn't have little eyes that are glowing like coals. No, the point is nothing, nothing is hidden from his gaze. He knows, he knows what's happening in every heart. Nothing, nothing is concealed from the Son of Man. He has infinite knowledge. He knows what's happening in every church. He knows what's happening in this church. He knows, he knows if you're compromising your faith in any way. He knows if you're living a double life, probably in a room this size. Some of you are, pretending to be one way at church, but living another way in the world. You know, you can fool people. You can fool pastors, right? People may be fooled, but the Son of Man isn't tricked right? He knows, he knows, he knows what's happening. Uh, Maybe some of you have have been watching, I just, Diane and I just finished watching the fifth uh, season of The Crown, you know, about Queen Elizabeth, who just recently died, and there's one episode where she and her husband Philip are talking about the marriage difficulties of their children, which is a big part of the story, as you know, if you're familiar with the story, but anyway, there's marital infidelity going on, and and Philip, uh, uh, Philip is rather casual about it. I mean, he's not happy about it, but he's he says he says it's not it, it's not that big a deal in some ways to him. And I don't know if this is historically accurate, but in the show, in the show, Elizabeth says it's a great line. She goes, "You know what bothers me the most about this? He knows." He knows. I love that line. That almost sent chills down my spine. He knows. He knows what's happening. That's what bothers her. The Son of Man, the Son of Man knows. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, remember I said a lot of the vision is applied to the churches. This, This relates to the church at Thyatira. We're told that Jesus, again, we're told Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. And here he threatens judgment against the false prophetess Jezebel. She's leading the church astray with her false prophecies. You know, uh, again, Cass prayed about this. We've seen this lately. You know, the United States has signed into law same-sex marriage. But what's really distressing is some Christian churches are accepting this, and Christian institutions, at least so-called, right? Of course, there are still some believers there. But recently, the Christian Reformed Church, they met together and said, we will not accept, we will not accept uh, same-sex relationships and uh, as uh, biblical, and yet Calvin University uh, is allowing some professors who hold to same-sex relationships to retain their professorships instead of releasing them, which they should do according to the Bible. Compromising—this is the big problem in many of the churches in Revelation. Compromising the faith. Jesus sees such false teaching. He knows about such defections of faith. And a day of reckoning is coming. In fact, we're, we're told again that Jesus has eyes of flame of fire in Revelation chapter 19, verse 12. That is the passage about the second coming. That is the passage when, where Jesus is coming back on a white horse. And when he comes back, those who oppose him will be destroyed. And they'll be judged at the final judgment. They'll be they'll be they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. You, you, you know, when John wrote this book, uh, Rome Rome seemed to be in control of the world. Anti God forces were were dominant. And I think in, in in Revelation 13, the beast in John's day, the beast, the Antichrist stood stood for Rome itself. I think there are new manifestations of the Antichrist and the beast as history continues. But the word for us is, does it seem like the world is out of control? Does it seem like things are going from bad to worse? Does it it seem like Christians are not respected? Well, they weren't respected in the first century either. And, And John reminds us The victory of Rome, the victory of anti-God forces, the triumph of the wicked, it's, it's very brief. Jesus knows what's going on. He sees it. He'll make everything right in the end. Notice that the Son of Man's feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Again, this isn't literal, right? Jesus doesn't really have bronze feet. Uh, look at the text carefully. It, it says his his feet are like bronze. It's not that his feet are bronze. It Burnished bronze, uh, it, it gleams, doesn't it, with a, with a splendor and a, a beauty. And, and I think this image points to Jesus' purity. He's absolutely holy, like God is holy, because he is fully divine, right? He's absolutely holy. And and he has infinite strength. Bronze feet crush enemies. He, he stamps on his enemies. He'll, he, he destroys them. We're, we're told again in the letter to Thyatira, so we connect where this is used elsewhere in the book, we're told in the letter of Thyatira again that Jesus has feet like burnished bronze. Again, Again, this relates to Jezebel and her followers. Jezebel wasn't her real name, right? That's picking up an Old Testament name and applying it to a false prophet of John's day. He will not, the Son of Man will not tolerate evil. He will crush them. He will crush evil. Is he bad? Is he bad because he crushes evil? He will crush evil because he is pure, and he is good, and he is holy, crushing evil, is not evil itself is it it's a manifestation of his goodness his voice is like the roar of many waters verse 15 his voice is as majestic as the mighty ocean waters as as a, as a waterfall crashing as a, as a, as a rushing river there there are many voices in the culture and in, in social media You know they're swirling, swirling, and swirling, and there's talking, and there's talking, and they're talking, but this voice, this voice has majesty, and power, and it has a beauty that outlasts any other voice. This is the voice that silences ultimately every other voice. And in speaking of his voice, notice that a two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, verse sixteen. That can't be literal. A two-edged sword would really cut up your mouth, wouldn't it? Now, it's not—it's not literal. The—the—the the, the sword refers to the word that comes out of the mouth of the Son of Man. It is sharper than any two-edged sword because it cuts and destroys his enemies. It is an effective and powerful word. Revelation often emphasizes the final judgment, doesn't it? We see that often in this passage. In fact, again. The two-edged sword is mentioned twice in one of the letters, in the letter to the church of Pergamum in chapter 2, and that two-edged sword is directed to, in this letter, to Christians, at least people who call themselves Christians, who are compromising, and and it appears again in Revelation 19, verse 15, again, that's the passage on the second coming, where Jesus is coming on the white horse in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. Remember what's happening in that passage? Jesus and the armies of heaven are coming. You have the beast, the false prophet, and their evil armies coming for the battle. The beast is the Antichrist, and Jesus speaks the word and defeats the beast and the false prophet and their enemies, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. That agrees with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where there the beast, is, the Antichrist, is called the man of lawlessness, and Jesus will destroy him by the breath of his mouth. Jesus will speak the word, and poof, he's gone. Let's rejoice, because we are triumphant finally, aren't we? These aren't just words on a page. There are anti-God forces. They will be defeated. So finally we see the face of the Son of Man was shining like the sun in its full strength. Have you ever tried to look at the sun when it's shining at full strength? Well, kids, if there's kids left in here, don't do it. Adults don't do it either, right? It can damage your eyes to look at the sun. Of course, it's so glorious, it's, 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 it's difficult to do. Well, that's, that's the point of the passage, isn't it? The Son of Man is radiant. He is brilliant. He is majestic. And so John is saying, consider this glorious, beautiful, radiant, astonishing Son of Man. His beauty is more than we can bear And yet it fills our souls. We serve the majestic one, the glorious one, the beautiful one. So how do we respond? That's the next segment, verses 17 through 20. Both John and Jesus. Well, when John sees the Son of Man in all his glory, he falls on his face as though dead. He he faints straight away, doesn't he? When he sees the Son of Man in all his glory. I don't know if you've ever had someone say to you, hey, I'd really like it if an angel appeared to me or, 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 or Jesus himself, that would be great. They don't know what they're talking about, right? Because every time in the Bible an angel or God appears to someone, we can't take it. We, we faint straight away. It's too glorious. And that's what happens here, right? It's, it's too much. It's too much for John as finite and sinful creatures we cannot stand in his presence. And yet at the same time, and at the same time there's something thrilling about this. You know, people climb Mount Everest for the adventure, for the risk, for the thrill. Maybe some of you read the book Into Thin Air. I read that book. One of the striking things about that book, not, not at one moment in that book did the guy ever say I'm having fun, right? Right? The whole time he is like miserable, you know, so cold and so difficult. But what did he do it for? The, the, the adventure, right? To say you've climbed it. The one thing we don't want to experience in life, we don't want to be bored. And and what is what is scary and terrifying, is often exciting. Well, what am I saying? You'll never get bored with God, because. He is, in the best sense of the word, terrifying as well. And therefore, he's exciting. He is far more terrifying and thrilling than anything in this world. That is why only God can satisfy our hearts, because everything that is beautiful, everything that's exciting, everything that's fascinating in this world points to him. But, that, but we don't end there, do we? The Son of Man is not only terrifying, but also loving and comforting. He lays his right hand on John. That, the right hand is the hand of strength, right? And what does he say? Fear not. That's the word to the suffering church in the first century. That's the word to the beleaguered church, to the persecuted church, to the church in danger of compromise. And that's the word for me and you today. That's the word for ECC today. Don't be afraid. We fear many things. We fear people. We fear future. And we fear death. But the glorious Son of Man says, don't fear. Don't fear. We're to be free from fear because the Son of Man is also the Son of God. Jesus says in verse 17, I am the first and the last. These words are truly astonishing. We we, we can go back to the Old Testament and see from these words. This is one of the clearest examples. Actually, there's lots of them. But here's one of the clearest examples in the Scriptures that Jesus is fully divine, that He's fully God. These words go back to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Let me read that to you. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. So this claim is made in the Old Testament by Yahweh, the God of Israel. What does He say? There's no other God but me. I am the first and I am the last. And now Jesus says the same thing. So it's very clear, isn't it? That Jesus is also, as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, the first and the last. He is fully God. He is fully divine. And, of course, we'd have to look at many other texts, but we, we, we see from this, right, that the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Spirit is fully God. We have three persons but one God sharing the same essence, the same being, the same The same nature. That is not an invention, is it, of the later church, but it reflects accurately the teaching of the New Testament. The Son of Man is the first and the last. He has always been. He has always existed. He will always be. He has reigned from the beginning of history and before He has been in existence. He will reign to the end of history. His rule will have no end. Fearful Christian, the Son of Man holds the world in his hands, doesn't he? He holds your life in his hands. He is in control. The world is not spinning out of his control, he rules. Do not, what does he say? I'm the first and the last, and everything in between, I rule. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. Trust me. But John doesn't stop here. Jesus isn't only fully God, but he's also fully man. In verse 18, Jesus identifies himself as the living one. He says, I was dead, but look. I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. You know, death and Hades, I I think, stand for the same thing. Hades stands for Sheol, the realm of death. And death and Hades, they're almost almost like personal forces here, right? Death and Hades that rule over the human race. As I mentioned at the beginning, Hebrews says people are enslaved by the fear of death all over. their lives. But, but here, these words are so striking to me. We celebrate, don't we, this time of year, the mystery of Christmas. And what's the mystery? The eternal dies. Here, do you see those, these words? What titanic words Jesus speaks. What are those words? I was dead. As a human being, I was dead. Do you fear death? Our Savior has gone before us. He has also died. If someone were to say, God doesn't understand what I'm going through. He hasn't gone through what I've gone through. He hasn't suffered the way I've suffered. Yes, He has. Yes, He has. I was dead. The first and the last also died. And yet death isn't the last word. As the Son of Man, He has conquered death He lives forevermore and now he holds the keys, right? The keys of death and Hades, they're jangling at his side and he takes those keys and he unlocks the doors of death and Hades and all those who belong to him, that's the invitation to all of us today, right? All those who belong to him, come out those doors and death and Hades will not reign over us. Our ultimate enemy isn't Rome, Our ultimate enemy aren't godless forces that are here today. Our ultimate enemies aren't our political opponents. Our ultimate enemy isn't those who disagree with us over morality. Our great enemy is death. And we face death because of sin. The wages of sin is death. But we have no reason to fear because Jesus has flung the prison doors of death and Hades open. So I close by saying the words of the Son of Man, ring down throughout history, and they land on us today. Wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whatever you fear, what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Let's pray. Father, we pray through your power and by your Spirit, That we will not fear, but that when we are afraid, as the psalmist says, we will put our trust in you. We will put our trust in our great God who sent his son to conquer sin and death, and that we will recognize that Jesus reigns now as the glorious son of man, and that he sees all, and he rules and reigns over all and that we can take comfort in that, and we can place our lives into your hands, and we pray that we will do so during all our days, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.